Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianmedia.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. So happy to be here with you and so happy that you are listening. Invite a friend, a relative, whomever, to learn more about what John Paul II calls the Eastern Lung of the Church, a church breathes with both lungs. In fact, that's how we got the name of this program, Light of the East. It's from John Paul II's letter, his apostolic letter of 1995, called Oriental Lumen, which means Light of the East. And in that letter, he urges the whole Catholic Church to learn more about the Eastern Lung of the Church, the Eastern Christian churches, so as to be edified by the riches of the Eastern churches and also to work towards the cause of unity between both, the both lungs of the church, east and west. So, I'm glad to be here and glad you're here as well. The one meeting point that we all have, east and west, there are many meeting points, of course, but the one, the main one, is, of course, that which is the source and summit of our existence, and that is the Eucharist. On this program, what we do is we convey to you the riches of the Eastern Church, but also the Western Church as well. It's kind of an approach of honoring and emphasizing the complementarity of the Church. But of course, our primary emphasis is the Eastern lung of the Church, its respective riches. And although the two lungs of the Church, East and West, both have as the source and summit of their existence, the Eucharist, the difference, and this is the case in all of the differences between the East and West, always has to do with emphasis, a particular aspect. Think of it as a diamond. You know, a diamond has many facets, and you're looking at a diamond. Now, you can see the whole diamond if you look at it kind of off in a distance a little bit or just kind of a, give it a kind of a general look. You know, there's, it's a diamond. But if you look more specifically, you can see that there are other facets of the diamond or many facets of the diamond, and each one of those facets reflects light It's almost like its own little prism. That's what makes a diamond beautiful. The different facets reflect light in their own particular way. So they're all beautiful, but they're all unique. Well, that's how the church is. So the difference between East and West is which facet of the diamond is being emphasized. They both arrive at the same point. Again, Eucharist, source and summit of our existence, both of us, East and West. But it's how we emphasize, how we look at the Eucharist which part of it is emphasized. And put the two together, you get the whole. In other words, the church, East and West, needs one another. When it comes to the Eucharist, in the Eastern churches, the Eucharist, like all other sacraments and all other aspects of liturgy and spirituality, has its own particular emphasis in the East. 
Because the Eucharist is, of course, the source and summit of our existence, it's such a huge topic, we're going to spend a, a few programs on this subject. Another reason we're going to is because when we approach the Eucharist in the Eastern churches, well, think of it like preparing for a wedding. It takes a long time to prepare for a wedding. There's a lot of preparation. There's a lot of fuss. There's a lot that goes into the wedding itself. Then, of course, there's just the wedding itself with all of its excitement and richness. And then there's a period, of course, after the wedding. So think of it kind of like a, like a bell curve, sort of rising up. You know, like a roller coaster. You're going to rise up. Then there's a climactic moment, and then there's sort of the what we call the falling action and resolution. So we have to kind of move in kind of a bell curve for this subject because it's so encompassing. And one of the most important things to keep in mind during this series, it'll be a bit of a series on the Eucharist from the Eastern perspective, is the idea, the concept, the word, the mystery, sacrifice. Nicholas Cabasillus, he was a great Eastern theologian of the Middle Ages, and he said this about the Eucharist, kind of summed it up in terms of the Eastern perspective. He said, first, the Eucharist is a sacrifice. A sacrifice is not a mere figure or symbol, but a true sacrifice. Secondly, it is not the bread that is sacrificed, but the very body of Christ. Thirdly, the Lamb of God was sacrificed only once for all time. The sacrifice at the Eucharist consists not in the real and bloody immolation of the lamb, but in the transformation of the bread into the sacrificed lamb. Now, you keep in mind this word sacrifice. That's going to explain a lot. But in order for it to be a sacrifice, we have to understand what sacrifice means, especially from the Eastern perspective. We're accustomed to thinking of sacrifice as something is given up or something dies, or we kind of walk away from something, we let go of it. And usually this involves a kind of a, well, almost like a gloominess, almost like a regret, well, I have to give this up, or this is being given up. Like we're taking something and giving it away, and we're never to have it again, or for a long time not to have it, or whatever. It's always a bit of a negative, there's a kind of a predominantly negative sense of our understanding of sacrifice. We're going to introduce a little bit different understanding, and that comes from the Eastern perspective. Sacrifice, in the way that the East looks at it, is rather positive. In other words, sacrificing is not so much giving up as it is giving, and it's not gloomy as much as it is joyful. And it's not about death as much as it is about life. Is there a death involved? Well, especially in the sacrifice of the Eucharist, yes. But here's the catch. Some things, such as the Old Testament, the precursor of the Eucharist in the Old Testament, of course, was the sacrifice of the lamb, you know, the Holocaust that was done in the temple. The lamb was killed so as to release life. Yes, to release life. See, loss of blood in the biblical understanding was always a releasing of life. And that's why whenever there was a loss of blood, there had to be a kind of a re-entry through a particular ritual. Sometimes this was called a ritual of cleansing. Now, that does not mean that the person or the process was so-called dirty. Rather, it was extraordinary. In a sense, it was supernatural. The loss of blood meant life was being released, released from the body. So the body had to go through kind of a re-entry to bring it back to, in a sense, a kind of a normalcy. 
because something extraordinary happened. That's why women were considered to be unclean, quote-unquote unclean in the Old Testament after childbirth, because childbirth involved loss of blood. It's not because childbirth was a dirty thing and women were dirty or blood was bad or dirty. Rather, it was for a more lofty reason. It was because with loss of blood was a releasing of life. And it's as if the life had to be put back into the woman through a ritual, a ritual what they called cleansing. So sacrifice is actually positive, joyful, not gloomy, a giving or an offering rather than just a giving up. And yes, it involves death, but only for the purpose of life. And sacrifice means to do something holy. In the Latin, the word sacrifice would be translated in that regard, to do something holy, to do something holy, sacrifice. In Greek, another word is thesia, and that means to offer by burning. In other words, to have something consumed. It goes up, it is given because it is consumed, it is burnt. It is burnt in a way of a gift, a gift to God. You might recall from the Old Testament, there were a number of things that were sacrificed, not just the lamb, but also things like incense. There were incense offerings. Smoke was sacrificed. Something was burned and the smoke went up to God. So the idea of sacrifice then is one that is first and foremost positive. It's a giving. It is doing something holy and something is being, I'm going to use the word consumed or burned, offered up in that regard. It's not just where you give something up. You give it more as gift more as offering. Key word there, offering. So that sets the tone for our whole understanding of Eucharist in the Eastern spirituality. Yes, this is true in the Western spirituality as well, but there is a greater emphasis in the East of this form of sacrifice. Now, because it's a sacrifice, because it's a big deal, like I mentioned earlier, like a wedding, there is a great deal of preparation. We're going to look at the process, and I'm going to use the term process of Eucharist, the experience of Eucharist. It's not just going to communion. It's not just getting Jesus. It's not even just consecrating bread and wine. It's not just changing bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. Certainly, it is that. It is all those things, but it is so much more. It's an event, an experience. It is our participation, in fact, in the wedding feast of the Lamb. It is a marriage. It's a nuptial relationship, a nuptial experience. So we have to prepare for that. In the East, there is actually a very elaborate preparation. First of all, we prepare our hearts, our minds, our souls. Certainly confession is the best preparation for that. Going to confession prior to receiving Eucharist is not mandatory. In other words, you don't have to do it every time you receive Holy Communion in the Eastern churches. But certainly, it's advisable, and so too in the Western church as well. It just makes sense. You're going to receive something very, very holy, God himself, into your body and soul, your whole being, so we clean house. Certainly, confession is the best preparation for the receiving of Eucharist. But in addition to that, we prepare our minds, our hearts, and our souls by putting on kind of a liturgical Eucharistic game face. This actually should start the evening before. And in fact, in the Eastern churches, we have an evening service called the Vesper service, which is a very significant part of our liturgical prayer. 
Evening Vesper services are part of the preparation, believe it or not, for the Eucharist the next day, the next morning at the Sunday liturgy. And from the time of the Vespers, which is the setting of the sun, usually around that time of the day on Saturday, until the receiving the Eucharist, that whole time period is considered a preparation for receiving Eucharist. That's why oftentimes fasting from that point on was recommended. It was the, in fact, it was the practice that, has, of course, has been relaxed in recent years. But from the time of the evening prayers and through the night, until we came to the reception of Eucharist, there was a fast that was observed. The idea being that the very first food to enter our bodies, once the Sabbath began, and then we moved into the Sunday, the Lord's Day, the very first food would be the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. Then we could eat, of course, afterwards, after Eucharist. But before that, the whole time was considered to be a fast and therefore a preparation. It was also kind of a period of winding down. In this regard, I'm going to tell you a story about my father when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Watch how you pray. People are watching you pray. And now, a Szeptycki Institute Minute with Father Peter Galadza. In a pastoral letter on church singing, Andrzej Szeptycki once wrote, In sung prayer, especially in the sung divine office, the Holy Church provides people with a kind of augmentation of the gospel proclamation. The very appearance of people who are praying encourages others to imitate them. And their appearance, the words and the style, also teach others how to pray. To perform the divine office as well as all church singing in a holy way, is one of the many ways that we can cause the name of our Most High God, the Heavenly Father, to be glorified even with our limited abilities. To learn about degree programs in Eastern Christian Studies, visit shiptitskyinstitute.ca. That's S-H-E-P-T-Y-T-S-K-Y institute.ca. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East the Tabor Life Institute, which is dedicated to the formation and education in the theology of the body. To find out more about the Tabor Life Institute, you can go to taborlife.org. That's taborlife.org. Especially if you're interested in conferences and retreats, in particular for youth, young adults, and also for those of you who speak Spanish. That's taborlife.org. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. And we're beginning our little mini-series on the Eucharist, the source and summit of our existence. As I mentioned at the beginning of the program, and always keep this in mind, the belief about the Eucharist is, of course, the same between East and West. The body and blood of Christ, the real presence, and so on. But it's a matter of what is emphasized. And that's the case with all things, all differences in the church between East and West. And remember, these differences are complementary, not oppositional. They're complementary. 
put them together, you get that beautiful diamond. You get the beautiful hole by putting together the different facets of that diamond. So the eastern facet of the Eucharist is what we're concentrating on for the next few programs here at Light of the East. And again, I'm glad you're with us, and I'm glad to be here with you. I left off by saying I was going to talk to you about a story, a story that my father told me growing up. Because I mentioned that from the time of the evening Vesper service until the reception of Eucharist the next morning at Sunday Divine Liturgy was considered to be a time of preparation and a fast. My father was a son of a priest, meaning my grandfather was a priest, of course, as well, obviously, because I'm my father's son. <laughs> and in fact, I have married priests on both sides of my family. It goes back many generations because in the Eastern churches, there was the practice that married men could become priests. You have to be a married man first. Priests don't get married. Married man becomes a priest. It was a common practice in the Byzantine church, especially in the countries of origin. So my father was the son of a priest. So he grew up in a parish house. Imagine that, growing up in a parish house, essentially growing up in church. And he would tell me that when he would help chant for his father, my grandfather, who was a priest, he would help chant the evening Vesper service, that from that time on, once that service ended for the rest of the evening and the night, it was considered to be a quiet time. In other words, it wasn't this, oh, Saturday night's date night, Saturday night we're going out. Basically, it was a time of quiet preparation until you receive Eucharist the next day. And I have to admit, when I was growing up in my father's home, I had a little residue of that. Saturday night was like a lot of American families back in the 50s and early 60s, bath night. The kids would all get the baths. We would get ready for church the next day. And there was a kind of a sense, I remember having the sense as a child of the day was winding down. There was something different about Saturday evening that was different than the rest of the evenings of the week. It was not party night. My parents weren't going out or we weren't just going out to play or do whatever. It seemed like Once Saturday night came around, we went into this preparation mode. Even though church was going to be the next day, we went into a kind of a family household preparation mode. Things kind of wound down, got quieter, got closer as a family, took the bath together, gathered around the TVs, the black and white TV. Back in those days, you called the flip box, you know, that they always adjusted. It wasn't like sophisticated televisions today. Or we gather around, say prayers, a, a number of things we would do, but it would be kind of a wind down, which was a preparation for what would be Eucharist the next day. So all this is to make the point that our experience of Eucharist, particularly in the Eastern Church, actually has a kind of a rising action, which begins on Saturday. In fact, I'll back up a little bit. Oftentimes on Saturday afternoons, we would go to confession. As I mentioned before, confession is the best preparation for Eucharist. So think of it as confession, the evening prayer of the church, And then a kind of a quiet evening where things kind of wind down and we open ourselves up, our hearts, our minds, or sort of get into the liturgical Eucharistic game face, I'll call it that in common language, all in preparation for the Eucharist. So you can see, before we can get there, like a wedding, there's a lot that goes into a wedding. Think of Eucharist, especially in Eastern churches, as this great wedding feast. And so there's a lot of preparation, a lot of kind of fuss in a sense before you even get there. Now we'll move then to the other very significant part of the preparation for Eucharist. And this is the part that goes on up in the sanctuary of the Byzantine church to the side of the main altar, the altar of sacrifice. It happens on a table, which is called a table of preparation. It looks something like an altar. In fact, sometimes it's called an altar, but it's not really. There's only one altar in the church. 
But this table, looks like an altar, is to the left of the main altar in the sanctuary of the church. Now, centuries ago, this table of preparation used to be located in a separate building called the Scalephalachian. I know it's a big Greek word, but it meant a building of preparation. And what would happen is the parishioners, the faithful, would come, some of them, a few of them would come to that building with bread and wine that they made. And the deacon would meet them there. He would receive those gifts. He would look at them, look them over, and he would select, just like something similar to the Jewish high priest selecting the lamb for slaughter. He would select those breads and wines that were, he thought, were the best, most appropriate. And those were going to become then the bread and wine that would be used at the liturgy that, of course, would then become the body and blood of Christ. And there was a ritual of preparation of these gifts, which took place in that building, that separate building. Today, as I mentioned, it it occurs on the table next to, to the side of the main altar in Byzantine churches, in the sanctuary. At that table, the deacon and the priest gather with incense and with the gifts, bread, the wine, and a little, little bit of water. And they take the discos and the bread and the chalice, and they place it on this table preparation. And the bread that we use in the Byzantine church in particular and other Eastern churches is a leavened bread. It's like a, a loaf. We use leavened bread for a number of reasons, but it's not that it's that significant. It just is the way that it developed primarily. It is different than in the West, where the West used the unleavened bread. And the primary difference would have to do once again with this idea of emphasis. In the West, there's a strong emphasis of this being the Passover meal. In the East, the emphasis is on the new covenant, on the resurrection, so the bread can rise like Christ rose. Again, it's emphasis. Neither one is right or wrong. They're both right, but it's a matter of emphasis, and a very fascinating emphasis, too. The complementary church I always find to be very fascinating. We arrive at the same point by coming at different directions. So he takes this leavened bread, and sometimes it's five loaves of bread, or it can be one loaf of bread. Generally, the Byzantine churches use one loaf. And on this table of preparation, the priest takes a lance. There's a lance and a knife there. And he takes the lance, and he will actually insert the lance into the bread at a certain point in the bread. Because in the middle of this bread, this loaf of bread, is a kind of an embossed image of the cross. And within that cross are four letters, abbreviations, I-C-X-C-N-I-K-A. It stands for Jesus Christ Conquers. It's an ancient Greek abbreviation. So what's happening is in the middle of this bread is considered to be the lamb, the paschal lamb, the lamb that will be sacrificed, the host, the lamb of God. So the priest will insert the lance into this piece of bread, and eventually he will cut out the center of that bread. Now, as he's doing this, he's saying certain words, certain prayers, and they are paraphrases or direct verses from the scripture themselves. For example, he will say, like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep without blemish that is silent before the shearer, he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, judgment was taken against him. Who shall declare his generation? Now, as he's saying these individual verses that I just read, he's actually cutting the bread at a certain point cutting out that centerpiece, which is the lamb. And notice how the phrases from the scripture all have to do with, what's our big magic word here? 
Yes, you got it. Sacrifice. See, you were listening at the beginning. Sacrifice. Let me read those again. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep without blemish that is silent, before the shearer he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, judgment was taken against him. So he takes out that loaf. He takes out the center of that loaf and puts it on the discos. And the discos in the Eastern churches is raised up on a pedestal. So think of the flat discos, but raised on a pedestal. So it's like on a stand. He will then begin to cut the rest of the bread into smaller particles. The very next particle he cuts is the particle that will symbolize the mother of God. In fact, he cuts it in the shape of a triangle, and he puts it next to the bread that is symbolizing the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, the host. Then he will pour water and wine into the chalice. And again, as he's doing this, he's saying several prayers. Again, usually paraphrases or direct phrases from the scripture. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a lance, and immediately there flowed out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness, and his witness is true. He blesses the wine and the water. Then, when he lays down the peace for the mother of God, he says, In honor and memory of our most blessed lady, the Theotokos and ever Virgin Mary, through whose prayers, O Lord, accept this sacrifice upon your heavenly altar. Again, there's the word sacrifice. That's the word you want to keep in mind as we move through this mini-series on the Eucharist according to the Byzantine Catholic Divine Liturgy. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Or hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. For the first time. Light of the East's mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. 